I invite you at this time to turn in your pew Bibles to page 54 where we continue our sermon series in the book of Genesis and read Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Give me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it. Trade in it. And acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honored of all his father's household, lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will consent to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us give our consent to them and they will settle among us. All the men who went out to the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. 
They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in numbers, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. One of the reasons why um, I have found that it is a good practice to go through books of the Bible uh, verse by verse is so that you don't avoid passages like this one. As I was reading James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on this particular passage, he said, If you examine a number of commentaries on the book of Genesis, you'll find that some writers simply skip over this incident. Arthur W. Pink is one. He wrote that he was leaving his readers to turn to it for themselves. He made no comment on it. Alexander McLaren also skips over it in his expositions of the Holy Scripture. And what I found most interesting is that H.C. Leopold offers some commentary, but when he gets to the end of these comments and to his section, which he calls homiletical suggestions or how you would preach this, he says, We may well wonder if any man who had proper discernment ever drew a text from this chapter. As a whole, it is an invaluable sidelight on the lives of the patriarchs. It is rightly evaluated by the more mature mind and could be treated to advantage before a men's Bible class. But we cannot venture to offer homiletical suggestions for its treatment. Well, here we go. I said not too long ago that step one to reformation in the church is to stop being embarrassed about what the Bible says. This is one of those passages that is a good litmus test for us as Christians. Can we read Genesis chapter 34 and all that goes on within it and say, that's what God said, so I believe it. That's what God said, so I believe it. God gave us this word. He intends for it to be preached. Therefore, Christ is here for us in this passage. And lessons in the spirit-filled life are here for us to learn and apply by grace. If I had a theme for this passage, it would be one that's being introduced at this point in Genesis, but will also actually carry out all the way through the Joseph narrative to the end of the Joseph narrative. And that's this, that God uses the evil we do To bring about his good purposes. God uses the evil we do to bring about his good purposes. Now, there are four ways, four points, the way I've broken this passage down. But this is essentially what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to walk through this passage um, at a decent pace. Uh, Maybe say a comment here or there. But uh, load the back of it with the uh, application. So, we're going to walk through the passage. The points I have is the... Number one, defiled, verses 1 through 7, where we hear about Dinah's defilement. Number two, deceived, verses 8 through 17, where we hear about uh, the brothers' deception of the men of uh, Shechem. And number three, destroyed, where we hear about how Simeon and Levi go into Shechem and, and, and uh, destroy uh, and kill and bring all this stuff away. And number four is disgrace, verse 30 and 31. 
Jacob's response to what they've done, okay? So defiled, deceived, destroyed, disgraced. And then the, f- the fifth point is just takeaways, things that we can learn from this, okay? All right, so let's look at that first point, defiled. Um, we hear in this section of the passage that Dinah, and if you remember the uh, genealogy or what we learned about all Jacob's children, that Dinah is the only daughter that we're told about, that he received this daughter from Leah and that she is younger, right? She's younger than all of, all of her brothers. So she is a, a, a young daughter, um, a young sister, a baby, a baby sister in the midst of many older brothers, right? And so Dinah, she goes to visit the women of the land. And this is something that we're supposed to look on negatively because the women of the land, the people of the land, um, are always looked upon in a negative sense that these are the people who live in the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, um, the Hivites. These are the people that God is already introducing to us at this point in Genesis saying their, their, uh, their guilt hasn't reached its full limit yet. But when the people of Israel come back to enter and to possess the promised land, I want them devoted to destruction. Their sinfulness will have reached a full point where they must be devoted to destruction, right? Well, this woman, Dinah, this young girl, she's interested in the ways of the world. She's interested in the ways that um, these women uh, do things. And so she goes and she visits them. And what we find out is that while she's visiting them, uh, Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, uh, the prince of this town, the prince of this city, saw her, took her, and violated her. So these words that are being used here, particularly in the Hebrew, are heavy words. They're loaded words. They're words that are only used in association with rape and other situations and circumstances in the Old Testament. Um, this is a violent taking of, of this young girl. And this violation is a violation that is uh, in, uh, expressed, in this sense, against her will, right? So uh, what we find, though, is that after this event takes place, after this rape takes place, um, he wants to marry this woman. His heart's drawn to her. He, uh, he, he loves the girl, and he spoke tenderly to her. And you, you hear that, and you think to yourself, how can this man possibly do this? a violent, horrible thing to this woman, and then turn around and, and want her to speak tenderly to her, love her. This is a, an infatuation. This is a lust. This is not uh, a pure love that's being expressed here, okay? And so Shechem said to his father, Hermor, get me the girl as my wife. She wants, he wants to marry her. He wants to marry her now that uh, he's done this horrible thing to her. Um, so as much as it might be difficult for us to understand um, how this could even possibly happen in our modern sensibilities, that this, these two families would now negotiate the marriage of this woman to the man that raped her. Uh, these are kinds of things that happen all the time in the ancient Near East. Um, and, um, and it's something that should be shocking to us, but it's something that unfortunately in the, uh, the, the corruption of that day and age um, was something that happened uh, often, okay? And this had a lot to do with um, the, uh, the, the way the culture was back then is that a woman, um, 
she, she is to be married to a man, and, and always, in this sense, you're supposed to be a virgin. And this is the way that you ensured uh, the, that your daughter was cared for, was provided for, was protected, right? And now that this man has raped this woman, she becomes a less viable candidate for marriage. He's done this horrible thing to her, and now, in a sense, what's being put forward to us is that there really is no other option but to go ahead and seal the deal, Right? So that's what's being presented here. Uh, she, he says, Shechem says to his father, get me this girl. And so what we find out is Jacob heard this, um, that, this, that his daughter was defiled. His sons were in the field, so he waited for his sons to come back. Um, and then Shechem's father went out to talk with Jacob. And Jacob's sons heard what had happened, and they were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Now, if you notice the sort of anachronism here that Shechem had done this horrible thing in Israel as if Israel were a place, right? Uh, the textual note here is that that preposition in can also be against. And so the violation of Dinah, uh, the daughter of Jacob, is actually a violation of Jacob as a family. It's a violation of their dignity. It's a violation of their, um, their family. It's a violation of, of the honor of their family, right? And so this is a, a very communal sense, the way we view these things. Um, a, a violation, a, a horrible sexual violation against uh, this daughter is a, is a horrible sexual violation against the people of Israel, even as they are right now at this point, just um, a family of a number of sons, right? And so that's the defilement. Um, what we read in the following verses, 8 through 17, is that um, there's this deception, there's this plan put together by um, the sons of Jacob. And that is that Hamor said, please let us marry uh, your daughter. And, and not only does he say, my son Shechem wants to marry your daughter, but he says, let us all just sort of come together as one people. We will give our daughters in marriage to you, and you can give your daughters in marriage to us. We will blend together. We will become one people, Right? That's the presentation. That's what's being offered here is the, uh, the, um, the, the end of the peculiarity and the special nature of the people of Israel. And everybody who's reading it in Israel at the time that Moses put together this book of Genesis, their red flags would have been going up, right? Because later on in these five books of Moses, you will have clear indictments, clear statements to the people of Israel, as they're entering into the promised land, that these people, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Canaanites, these people you are meant to devote to destruction, entire destruction and judgment. You are not to intermarry with them. Because if you intermarry with them, they will make you come after their gods. If you intermarry with them, they will make you corrupt like them. They're meant to be judged by me in, in character with my nature, in character with my wrath and my judgment and my justice, they're not meant to be some, some peoples who you intermingle with. But that is what Hamor is offering to them. And this is what uh, the brothers of um, the sons of Joseph come up with. This is what they say. This is what you need to do if you want to intermingle with us, if we want to become one people, if you want us to give our sister, Dinah, our daughter, Dinah, to you in marriage, this is what you must do. You have to be circumcised like we are circumcised. You have to 
go through this uh, ritual act of becoming like us. We're circumcised as a sign of the, of the God that we follow, as a sign of the obedience um, and the faith of our uh, forefather Abraham. And if you want to be uh, amongst us, then you have to be circumcised as well. And so that's what they do. They say, you have to go and you have to um, um, get this circumcision, right? Um, we'll give our consent to you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we'll become one people. And, and the scripture here specifically says that they answered deceitfully. They replied deceitfully, right? The next uh, section of our passage, destroyed, verse 18 to 29, we see why it was deceitful that they did this. This was not um, a suggestion to the people of Shechem uh, in good heart, in good nature. This was not. This was a ploy, actually, of war, a tactic in war, a deception in war, so that they could have victory, so that they could have victory. So this is what uh, Hamor and his son do. They go to the gate of the people, and they go and they say to them, listen, this is going to be a good thing for us, guys. Uh, these men are friendly toward us. Let them live in our land, trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We will be able to marry their daughters, and they can marry ours. And the men will get uh, their livestock, their property, all their other animals will become ours. So, so this is going to be a gain for us, uh, um, they, he, they're appealing to the, um, the greed of these men. They're appealing to the fact that what's really going to happen in this transaction is that they're going to become richer and they're going to have access to these beautiful women, right? So uh, greed and lust. And all the men in this city, Shechem, consent to do this. They agree uh, to do this. And what happens is three days later, after they have uh, all the men in this city have been circumcised, and I don't think there needs to be any sort of deep explanation as to the reason why they would be sore or incapacitated in some way or incapable of going to battle or war. Um, especially for grown men, this would not be a comfortable uh, procedure. This would not be something that would be um, um, very... Uh, wouldn't, it wouldn't feel good, okay? So... Three days later, while all of them are still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, these are actually Dinah's brothers. Um, um, uh, uh, Leah is their mother as well. Took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. Now, it's unsure whether it's just Simeon and Levi who are going into the city and because everybody is incapacitated and laying out on their bed going, oh, oh, uh, that they're able to kill all these men. Or Simeon and Levi are the commanding generals and they've gathered these other men to come with them into the city. But in essence, what they, find, what they do is they kill every male because every male is uh, incapacitated. They're incapable of battling because they've tricked them into getting this circumcision. And they put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword. They take Dinah from Shechem's house and they leave. And they plunder the city. They take everything from the city, including um, the wealth, including the livestock, including the women and the children. And, and, and what's most uh, likely the case is that these, uh, the plunder and these women and children were assimilated into the people of Israel. So they took everything, right? Uh, so that was destruction, destroyed. And it's a precursor, um, in essence, to the destruction that uh, God is going to call the people of Israel to do as they enter into the land and destroy the Hittites, the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. 
But this is the last point, disgraced. Um, what we find after they do this thing is that uh, Jacob is very upset. He's uh, very upset with his, his, um, his um, sons for doing this. He said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and parasites, the people living in this land. We don't have lots of numbers. And if they decided to join forces against us and attack me, we would not be able to stand. We would be destroyed. Um, but, Jacob, or, but Simeon and Levi have uh, the final word in this narrative. And basically this is the word. Dad, you don't understand. You're thinking about yourself. But should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Should he have laid with her, raped her, and then tried to purchase her? And treated her like a prostitute. Okay, so that is the lay of the land there. It's a very um, gory. It's a very um, rated R scripture passage in Genesis. Um, It's a very um, peculiar passage in Genesis. But it is the word of God and it is something that teaches us. Right? And so, uh, one of the first things that I, I, I believe that this teaches us is that in Genesis 34, uh, people were more concerned about sexual purity than our modern culture. They were more upset about things like rape than our even modern legal system considers. Right? In fact, later on in, in the law of God, the, uh, the crime of rape will be given the death penalty. And there is a sense in which Simeon and Levi are seen as the protagonists in this narrative because they, they are the ones that said, what this person has done is a disgraceful thing against Israel. And it's a thing that should not be done. And it enraged them so much that they believed that the men of this city deserved the death penalty. But there's other takeaways as well. Now, the first one I want to mention is that we should settle where God calls us. I mentioned last week that Jacob did not go to Bethel, but rather settled here in Shechem instead, even though he had promised that he would go to Bethel. In fact, we'll find that right after this story, that's what he does. He picks up, he leaves, he goes to Bethel, right, to the house of God where he said that he would go. Uh, uh, this, is where, this is not where he promised to go, and nor is this where he knew God to be. He believed that God was in Bethel, right? And look at the result. Look at the result. If we are not where God wants us to be, often that creates conflict in our lives. Chaos. Hopefully not bloodshed, hopefully not rape, but you see that God is disrupting Jacob's life because he has not fulfilled what he has said he would fulfill. Another point that we see in this narrative, I believe, is that we need good fathers. Good fathers are needed, right? The first thing that I notice in this passage is Jacob's lack of care and protection for his daughter, Dinah, results in her violation. She goes unaccompanied 
and not chaperone to the city to be with the women of the land. And we, we get the sense that she's by herself, and that's the reason why she's able to be taken advantage of. Not only that, but we read later that as uh, Hamor comes to talk with Jacob, Jacob has a lack of action and direction. And he waits for his sons to come back from the fields. And his sons, in this narrative, take the lead. They're the ones that negotiate. They're the ones that come up with this plan of deception. They're the ones that take the initiative in restoring their their sister's dignity and the respect and honor of the family name. And the words spoken against what was done to Dinah... The ones who, who believed that they were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing, a thing that should not be done, are not from Jacob, but rather from Dinah's brothers. And even after the violent deed is done, Jacob's response is not to be thankful that his daughter's honor was defended, but rather that what his sons had done had brought trouble to him, a very selfish and a very shallow response. If you notice those last verses, you see a lot of me and I language. And Jacob is not viewed very highly in this passage. His sons begin to take the lead in the narrative. So we need good fathers. We need good fathers who will stand up for their daughters and their dignity. We need good fathers who will raise their children right and in the Lord. We need good fathers who, who know how to speak to situations where wrong has been done and bring to light God's word and God's direction. Another thing that we can learn from this passage is that Christian marriages are essential. Um, on, underneath all of this is that theme of intermarriage, right? Um, and you should intermarry with us. Now, in the Old Testament, this is, has a lot to do with, um, the intermarriage aspect has a lot to do with the purity of the ethnic people of Israel in order to keep or maintain the seed from which Jesus the Messiah would come. He was meant to be a Jew, a descendant of David, uh, a descendant of Abraham, and um, he, uh, in order for that to happen, the, the people of Israel had to maintain their distinction, be uh, set apart, right? Um, and so that is often what is displayed for us in the Old Testament. Um, in the New Testament, it's not about ethnicity. It's not about whether or not you are an Israelite, a Jew or not. It's not whether or not that you can marry interracially. It's not whether or not any of those things. What it becomes the qualifier now is that you are to marry in the Lord. You're to marry in the Lord. The 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is often a passage that's uh, pointed to about this when it says, do not be unequally yoked um, with, uh, with those who are in the world. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is actually not about marriage in particular, but more so about making alliances with the people who are in the world as Christians in general. But there's an application there as well in saying that um, if you are a Christian, you should seek to be married in the Lord. And if you need a particular passage that speaks directly to that, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about uh, the way that we are found in the Lord. If we come to the Lord and our, 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 our uh, spouse is not a Christian, 
then, but they're willing to stay with you, then, then you're fine. You're blessed in that. And we pray that you would be able to sanctify uh, your spouse in that situation. Um, but if you come to the Lord and your, your spouse is not a Christian and they leave, let them go. Let them go. You're at peace. Be at peace, right? Um, and another thing that it says is if, if, a, if a, uh, a woman's husband has died, she is free to remarry, but only in the Lord, Paul says. And so it's important that if we want marriages to be the foundation, the bedrock of our lives, we want our families to be the foundation and bedrock of our lives, we want our Christian lives to, uh, to function properly, what we find here in, in, this, uh, in this story is an important principle is that we should be praying for Christian marriages. If we have children, we should be praying for our, them to grow up and find Christian spouses. Uh, we, if, we, um, if we are in marriages that are Christian marriages, we should be praying that they would be strengthened, they would be encouraged, they would deepen in our faith and, and our, our ability to reflect um, Christ and the gospel, the glory of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. Um, and if we are in a, in, a, in a marriage where our spouse isn't a Christian, um, we should pray that our influence, our ability to speak to them, our salt and light would be something that the Lord would use in their lives to draw them to Christ. Uh, another principle that we can see here in this passage is that there is sin in the world, yes. You know, I, I, named, the pas- I named this sermon Shameful Shechemites, right? Because what we read about them is that this, this man, Shechem, he did this horrible thing to Dinah. And then not only did he do this horrible thing to Dinah, but his father, Hamor, did not... Um, did not say anything to him about it, uh, did not call him out for it, did not uh, put him out for it. And then the people, the men of the city, they didn't, they didn't do anything either. They, they, they by, by, uh, um, by their speechlessness, by their inability to speak out against this thing, that, this wrong that was done, uh, they became complicit in it. Um, and so it's easy to look at this story and to say, look at these, um, these Hivites. They are sinful, worldly, corrupt people, right? But the, this, this story is also telling us something that's important. As much as there is sin in the world, there is still sin in us. The representatives in this passage that stand for the people of God, of which we now call ourselves as Christians, who are in the family of God, who are the people of God, who are the Israel, right? They don't have the best part in this either. Jacob is a coward. The brothers lie and are deceitful. They lash out in violence, killing not just Shechem, but the entire city of men. They plunder and they take away the women and the children. This is an expression of the sinfulness, yes, that even the people of God struggle with. I mean, who are the bad guys in this story? The Shechemites, Simeon and Levi? It's meant to be vague. It's meant to be gray. It's meant to be Morally challenging for us to look at something like this and, and be struggling with wh- wh- who's the good person in this? Who are the good people in this? 
But even though there is sin and corruption in the world, and even though as Christians we still struggle against sin and corruption in our own hearts, one of the things that this passage teaches us, that's a very important reality. And it's one that's often neglected in our day and age because we try to get God off the hook. We say God is sovereign, but God didn't create this world knowing that this horrible thing would happen. And if you're trying to get God off the hook in Genesis 34, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when the Israelites come into the promised land later and literally destroy these people? Not just the men, but the women and the children. They devote them to destruction. How are we to handle things like that? We do so by knowing that God, even though he is not the author of evil, uses evil for good. Simeon and Levi's actions, even though they come from a heart of rage and violence, serve God's purpose of keeping the covenant community from assimilating among the Canaanites. They serve God's purpose because they allow for the Savior of the world to come into the world, Jesus Christ, who is a descendant of Jacob. You don't realize that, do you? But as you read Genesis 34, what you're actually reading is a moment in which the seed of the serpent almost overcame the seed of the woman. For if they were to say, yeah, let's just go ahead, you marry our daughters, we'll marry your daughters, that would have been the end of the Bible. Genesis chapter 34 would have been the last chapter. It would make our one-year reading plans a lot easier. But we also would not be saved. Because in that moment, in that moment, the seed, singular, that was promised from Abraham, who would be a blessing to the nations, whose name is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of man, would never have come into this world. So even though Simeon and Levi's hearts were filled with violence, even though they committed such heinous violence by going into the city and striking down all these men and doing this horrible thing, right? Lying and having all these men do this thing so that they could kill them, they could strike them down. And this defense of the situation, it brought about the salvation of the world. The redemption of all that God has created. Now when you look at it like that, it, it, it brings a little bit of a different light to this passage, doesn't it? And not only do we have this um, moment in which God uses evil for good, but we have another thing that points us to this ultimate reality in Christ, and that is this connection between Levi and Christ. We find in this passage that Levi, the son, the brother, has a propensity to violence. And it eventually leads Jacob to give this deathbed curse in Genesis 49 that Simeon and Levi, the two brothers, would not receive a tribal allotment in the future. 
And as they enter into the promised land and as they get their, their allotments of land, you'll find that Simeon does not receive his own allotment of land. And that the tribe of Levi does not receive their allotment of land. They have to uh, share in the um, um, inheritance of the others. But one reason why this happens for Levi is that he's chosen later, his people, his descendants are chosen later to serve as the priestly tribe in charge of the tabernacle and temple worship practices. And what's told to Levi is that you do not have an inheritance in the land because the Lord is your inheritance. The Lord is your inheritance. But many people don't think about this, but why exactly were the tribe of Levi, why was the tribe of Levi chosen for this role of being the priesthood, right? It was actually because of their propensity for violence. Their propensity to protect the dignity, not of Dinah, but of the Lord. In Exodus chapter 32, when Moses comes down from the mountain, right, and he finds that Aaron and the people of Israel have created this golden calf. By the way, one of the funniest moments of Scripture is, was, is when Aaron says, well, they just brought all this gold and poof, out popped a, a cow. I don't know how it happened. Like, that's got to be one of the funniest passages in Scripture where he's just like, I don't know how this happened. Yes, you do, Aaron. Uh, so anyway, Exodus chapter 32, right? So Moses comes down and he finds that the people are participating in pagan worship. They are frolicking around. They are, they are indulging in sexual immorality. They are worshiping this golden calf. They've raised this golden calf up and they are worshiping it as if it is Yahweh. Behold, the Lord, Yahweh, right? And Moses is struck by this. He had to come down because God told him they're doing this horrible thing, right? And this is what Mo Moses says. He says, whoever is for the Lord to me, right, to me. And the tribe of Levi comes to him and he says, take your sword out and go amongst the people. And what they do is they go amongst the people. And all those who had turned away from the Lord who are indulging in pagan worship. By the way, if this is something that upsets you, remember we said the commandments today, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's a breaking of the moral law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's a breaking of the moral law. So what Moses says, these, these, tri these Levites came to him. They took swords and they went amongst their own brothers. They went amongst their own people and they struck them down. And Moses says, because you were willing to defend the dignity and the holiness and the purity of God, even to the point of striking down your very own relatives, you have been given this position as a Levite. And what we don't think about the priesthood is their role was to guard the tabernacle and the temple so that it would remain pure, the worship would be pure, that the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, would not be defiled by sin and corruption. This, in fact, is actually the very role that Adam was meant to have in the garden. He was meant to protect and guard the garden from the serpent's entrance. And because he did not guard the garden, the, the evil serpent came in and deceived and lied and disgraced the woman. Now you're seeing a lot of these themes, aren't you? Here in Genesis 34, the passage that people don't want to preach. So this is what Levi is given, right? This Levitical role as the priest. 
And it's because the people of Levi were willing to strike out even in physical violence in order to defend the dignity and the holiness and the purity of God. And Jesus, though, we know, is the ultimate priest. But he's not in the order of the Levites. He's in the priestly order of Melchizedek. And however, rather than using physical violence to keep a community holy, like the Levites were called to do, he wages war in a different way by offering himself on the cross, by letting others do violence to him. He battles not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers and authorities, and he defeats them, not by striking them down with a sword, but by his death and resurrection. And so we see here, even in the picture of Simeon and Levi going in to Shechem and striking down those who defiled their family, the willingness of Jesus Christ to offer himself to the violence of sinful men in order to redeem them from that corruption. So is this the passage that should be preached? Yes. It's one that we need to not be embarrassed about because it points us to the reality that God uses the evil we do to bring about his good purposes. And of course, the greatest explanation and example of this is that God used the evil desires of the Pharisees and the scribes. God used the evil desire of Pontius Pilate and the Romans and Herod to put to death Jesus Christ, our Savior. But it is in the wickedness and evil according to men, of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that the greatest good is accomplished, the redemption from sin and the reversal of the curse and brokenness placed upon this world which God created. God gave us this word. He intends for it to be preached. Christ is here for us in this passage, and lessons in the Spirit-filled life are here for us to learn and apply by grace. May you do that. May you take this word and know that God uses wickedness in this world to bring about His ultimate good purposes. That on the end of days, we will not look upon all the evil and all the hurtful and all the horrible things that have happened in this world and look at God and point our finger at God and say, why did you allow this? But we will see it as way, the way it will ultimately be revealed, revealing his good purposes, his glory, our good. May we know all this in Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that we can learn from this passage the beauty of our Savior, the glory of our salvation, that we can learn from this passage the way that we still struggle with sin, but the way that you use even our struggle with sin for your glory and for our good. We pray that, Lord, in this passage, Christ was lifted high. 
that we were able to gaze upon his glory and to go away transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.